Welcome to the Blues Trail Revisited podcast. It's episode 14, and I'm Ted Reed. This podcast is sponsored by the Clarksdale Tourism Commission. Visit Clarksdale. This podcast is an offshoot of a film I finished this year about my return to the Mississippi Delta to rediscover the places I first encountered 50 years ago. To see the film, just go to www.bluestrailrevisited.com. You say your party's jumping, everybody's having a good time. I know you know what's going through my mind. Do you mind if I get comfortable and take off these shoes? While Saint fixes me a drink, baby, some of them down on blue. <laughs> On this episode, we're celebrating one of the greatest blues solo instruments of all time, the harmonica. From Sonny Terry and Sonny Boy Williamson to Charlie Musselwhite and Paul Butterfield, the great harp players have been widely regarded as blues royalty. Some of the most popular stops on the blues trail pay homage to players of what some call the Mississippi saxophone. Stars like James Cotton, Junior Wells, Jimmy Reed. Today, Clarksdale, Mississippi is home to several well-known harp players, and we're going to visit with a couple of them. First, we're going to stop into Deke Harp's store on 3rd Street in downtown Clarksdale. I've been whistling for 45 years. 
into this tin sandwich. <laughs> I'm Decarp, and I was born in Jersey City, New Jersey. I moved to Chicago, and then I moved to Clarksdale. So I've been three places. How long, how long you been in Clarksdale? I've been in Clarksdale six years now. Okay. Yep, I showed up in Clarksdale and opened up this place with $46. And a bunch of posters. I've been collecting them all for a long time. Somebody must have thought you had an honest face. Well. If you just showed up with $46. Well, <laughs> I, no I, <laughs> I, I actually, uh, you know, I talked to the landlord and she said, you know, she gave me um, the rundown of what it was going to cost and I thought I'd be able to do it so I had enough for the first month rent paid that ahead of time and got in a U-Haul and took all my stuff here and moved here so the only reason why I only had $46 is because it cost me about $1,800 to do the whole trip to get it okay. here all right. All so right. I knew once I got here I was opening up the juke joint weekend of the uh, 13th year uh, 2013 so um, I immediately started to you know well I busked a lot in front of my store even when I didn't have anything in here to sell I'd just go outside and play in the streets mm -hmm. and it's kind of how I got my sound by learning in the streets playing in the streets excellent mm -hmm. the first time I heard the harmonica well, I know this is not gonna help you in the beginning but I learned by listening to the pop songs that had harmonica. And at the time it was um, Three Dog Night, I think, they had that song called And When I Die, When I'm Gone, wah, 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 and they did it on the harmonica. And also I, I found um, that Creedence Clearwater on their live record had a song called Keep On Shoeglaying. And uh, I don't. I think it was John Fogarty actually playing the harmonica on it, and he wailed on it. And I'm like, man, this is great. But um, uh, and then Ozzy, of course, The Wizard. Mm -hmm. So I knew three popular songs back then going to school. But the actual time when I first heard the harmonica was in the boys' room. In I was in sixth grade, I think, I guess, or sixth or seventh grade. And um, this kid was playing the harmonica in the bathroom and then I took the reverb tiled walls and it just sounded like a, whoa what is that I I want to know so I asked him what it was and so he told me it's a harmonica the first one that I bought was the bigger marine band style this it's a low tune harmonica Now that's a um, Sonny Boy Williamson played these very a lot of them, and his hands were so big, you couldn't tell it was one of these, but it it was it was the you know the Marine Band 364, and uh, I was able to right then and there bend a note, like that same day I was able to, and my friends that knew me since you know we were kids, they even said, Deke. You know, some guys, it takes a while for them to get good, but I think you were good already from the day you started. And I was like, no, nah, not really. But I was able to learn how to bend notes right away. So the next day, I went back to school, and I found that kid. And I said, hey, could you show me something? You know, please, could, you know, I, I want to learn how to play harmonica. I got one. You know, and he goes, man, I ain't showing you nothing, man. I was like, really? 
and and truly he was like that mean he wouldn't show me so I was like you know what one day I'm gonna be better than you and that's it uh, and so I don't know 45 years later I got I don't know how many harmonicas if you look around in my shop there's they're all over I mean I I collect them I play them and I make them now um, so I, as you were coming up, uh, who were your big influences? Who were the folks that you learned more about? Well, like I said, it was the pop guys first. And then um, my brother hit me to James Cotton. And he told me, he said, there's this guy, man, from Chicago that plays harmonic pieces. And, he, and he, when he's playing, it's like so powerful. He uses his elbows to push more air out his wind. And I was like, nah, he don't do that. And so he goes, no, no, this guy's really, this guy's real. He jumps around, runs around. You got to see him, you know. It's like, so I got to this club early. It was 6 o'clock at night. Show didn't go on till I think, 9. And who rolls in, you know, right, right, right after us pulling into the parking lot was the Cotton Band. And right away, the, the saxophone player... You know, we got to talking and whatnot, and he says, "Why you want to meet James?" And I go, "Yeah, sure." Um, so he brings me up these stairwells, you know, and I get up to the top, and we get and we open up the, you know, I guess the green room they called it back then, and here's Cotton on the couch, just laying there, you know, laying on the couch sleeping, and he kicks him in the foot. He goes, "Hey, Cotton, you got somebody here you want to meet?" I followed him so much that he kept. He finally said to me, "Why do you keep following me?" And I said, well, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I want to, you know, I want to play harmonica and I want to be as good as you. You're the greatest harmonica player alive. I mean, that's what I want to do. Right. And he says, well, how about this? I'll give you a hundred bucks a day. And on the off nights, I'll get, uh, um, I'll, I'll give you a hundred bucks a day in a room. And on the off nights, you just get the room no hundred bucks. I said, when could we start? And that was it. I, st I drove for James Cotton Band on and off for eight years. But I, I watched him every night. I must have saw 400 shows. So he must have showed you a lot. In that amount of time, you had to pick up a lot. Well, you know, we sat down maybe four or five times, but most of my learning was watching him do it. Right, right. That's the most important. A lot of people don't realize, oh, I'm going to be a great blues man. I'm going to go take lessons and da-da-da-da-da-da. you got to see it done. Right. You gotta be there and see this guy have a hard day. Right. You gotta see when the amplifier breaks and we we go to different measures. I mean you gotta learn all of that stuff to be a real blues man, right. you know. And and he he showed me everything. How the business works, how cutthroat it is. I mean, I still I don't know if it's really close, but I still have the clicker that we used to check the rooms. Uh, here it is. Oh, so you count the, count the heads? Yeah. yeah. And I, I count the heads with this thing right here. And uh, <laughs> at the end of the night, I had to collect the money and they, they would say, well, we only had 140 people tonight. And I say, no, sir, no, you sir. had 220. Right. We need that much money for that. Right. You know, and he's, oh, how, did, well, how do I know? I said, sir, I sat right there at the door secretly counting everybody coming in. Right. You can't screw us. We, you know, and that's the way the music business is and still is. Still is yeah. The reason why we still can't make $100 a man is because there's a guy that'll do it for 50 
mm. or less, right. you know. So six years in Clarksdale with this store, what, what kind of changes have you seen just in the six years? Well, we, we're getting a lot more businesses coming in that are surviving. Um, I've seen a few fail, but their heart wasn't in it. You know, they thought, you know, well, you know, if you come door and juke joint, which you guys did, that everybody thinks that happens every day. Now, look, it's two days after juke joint, it's quiet, right. and we enjoy life. We're on Delta time here. We're, you know, money is the secondary part of my life. You know, I don't really live for the money. I just, I just like being here, and I, I feel that my spirit is, is, is content here with my music. I would like to tour more. I would like to have an agent someday, you know, that can book me and believe in me of what I do. So where do you think Clarksdale's going? I mean, you know, you see more and more people coming to these festivals and... The lure will always be here for the blues enthusiasts mm -hmm. to come and pay homage to, you know, Sun House and Robert Johnson, uh, Ike Turner and, you know, uh, Robert Nighthawk and James Cotton and Sonny Boy and Charlie Hooker. We, they all, you know, in Howlin' Wolf, they all loved this town. They always came here. There was, in Saturday nights after, you know, the sharecroppers came into town with, you know, with their money, this town was just hopping. I mean, Issaquina, which is just two doors right by the new Roxy, behind that, that was the new World District. Mm -hmm. And that's where they just do parties, parties, all the, I mean, the, the weekend was just fun here. Yeah, that and, spot where there's nothing now. Yeah, and then yeah. in the 40s and the 50s, it started to, you know, deteriorate in the 60s. We know what happened there. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, in the 70s, guys like you came down and started trying to find these guys that were still, you know, practicing the blues. And, you know, it started to resurge. I mean... You know, uh, Dick Waterman did the same thing a couple right. um, years before that in 67 right. and 8 mm -hmm. and found, finally found uh, Sunhouse in Rochester, New York. So what everybody has noticed, though, is that the audience has really changed for the mm, blues. Yes. It used to be a bunch of, you know, African-American folks who would be, you know, out for a night or mm -hmm. a weekend or something like that. And now it's Well, there's two, there's two different folks. kinds of blues where, where the African-Americans still you know, promote and, 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 and partake and come. Um, there's two different audiences, the soul blues and that, you know, they still like B.B. King and, and Bobby Blue Bland, they, they would have predominantly a black audience, you know, and, you know, they say you got to earn the right to play the blues. You definitely do, you know. I mean, there's no, there's Silver Spoon players all over the world, you know, and they got money to pay for their publicists and whatnot, yeah. but I've, I've been banging the but streets. You got, you got the tread marks on yeah, you. Yeah, I, I got skid marks. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, but look at yourself now. I mean, you got the shop in Clarksdale, and you're well, it, kind, you know, kind of an icon here now. I called my, when I, I tried to get uh, sober five times. I've been to five different rehabs, so I called myself a five-time loser, but now I'm a winner because I beat it, you know? And then just recently, in the last 50 days, I've been smoke-free cigarettes. I can breathe and run around in circles now and only get half-winded. <laughs> You're doing it all. I put a whole, you know, I put everything I got in my shows. And uh, 
someday somebody's going to realize that. Exactly. I do a lot of lessons here. Like guys um, will contact me that they're, you know, from the Netherlands or, you know, Europe or England. And uh, they write me ahead of time, say, I would like to take, is it possible I could take a harmonica lesson with you while I'm in Clarksdale? Because I'll be in Clarksdale on my way to New Orleans, past Vicksburg. I mean, they do the whole blues trail thing. And uh, so we set up a date, and then uh, there's some guys that walk out of here just floating. I mean, they're just floating. Like, they just got the holy grail lesson that's going to help them get to that next level. I mean, I I could play the harmonica on either side of my mouth. And that's from tongue blocking. I play, I could play the one blow from this side of my mouth, the four blow, and they're like, oh my god, how do you do that? But it's tongue blocking. That's the early style. That's, that's Defford Bailey. I mean, that old style with that vamping going on all the time. The guys that only play pucker, I mean, they go, sounds to me white excuse my <laughs> but but this sounds so much better instead of I mean it's two, two different ways playing with your lips or with your tongue everybody that plays the harmonica has their own sound really because it's it's the, yes this is the instrument but your body is the instrument with the wind instrument your body, your throat, uh, mine could be wider or thinner, or however way it works. You're it's absolutely important. right. You know, people with different body types, hands and stuff like mm -hmm. that, they get totally different sounds out of these things. Yes, yes. And then once you're good at it, they got their own sound, you know. Wow. I have, you know, I battled that for a long time because Cotton would always tell me, you need your own sound, man. And I was like, yeah, but I want to learn that. How do you do that one lick on, on the Creeper Creeps again? Could you show me that turnaround? And he's like, yeah, I could show it to you, but why? You need, you need to have your own sound, he kept telling me. And I was like, yeah, but I'm listening to Walter. I'm listening to Sonny Boy and you. And I want to play like that. And he's like, that's all good, but you've got to have your own sound. And I didn't know. It took me 20 years to figure out what he was talking about. Right. And now, you know. But now you do. And that's only because I was a street urchin. You know, I yeah. literally learned all of this from playing in the streets. Thank you. 
away from Deeks is the Bluesberry Cafe, where you can find another harmonica playing Clarksdale resident, Watermelon Slim. His real name is William Homans, but you can call him Slim. So, how did you get the name Watermelon Slim? Oh, well, that's usually the question people start at. I, I uh, worked as a laborer and truck driver and political uh, uh, activist and whatnot through the 70s, and when I went to Oklahoma, having said to myself, you know, you're spinning your wheels here, you're 30 years old and you're spinning your wheels, went to Oklahoma with a friend of mine and got a place in southeast Oklahoma in Pushmataha County in the, uh, in, in the bottom corner down by Arkansas. And in July of 1980, it was the hottest year they've had since the Dust Bowl down there. We had one day I actually had registered at 113. The day I was, uh, I became watermelon slim, I was standing in a field of watermelons, which I grew by the sweat of my brow, and I was eating a piece of watermelon eating up my profits. So I, uh, I looked, uh, I, I just happened to reach my hand in my pocket and I pulled out a harmonica. It was a D harmonica, uh, special 20 is what it was. And I'm sitting there eating this piece of watermelon and, uh, and I looked at the harp and I looked at the watermelon and Bang! Suddenly, like Paul on the Damascus Road. Uh, thou art no longer Saul, but Paul, you know the reference. Suddenly, I realized I had a blues name, that there might be plenty of Slims, as Magic Slim, and uh, Memphis Slim, and Bumblebee Slim, and Madison Slim, and, and this, that, or the other, and some of them are really fat. But I knew there wasn't no Watermelon Slim before me. So I've had that name for 39 years at this Excellent. point. All right. 40, year, 40 years next uh, fall. When, when, when did you discover that music was your calling? Well, uh, I first heard the blues without knowing what they were in 1954. I was in my mother's house and the, and the woman who cleaned and cooked and whatnot for, uh, for my mother and took care of me and my little brother, uh, were, uh, she was singing something. 
And then they go, oh, my mama don't allow me to out all night long. And, and she'd sing this while she was doing her work in my house. And I didn't know what it was, but I knew I liked it. And she'd improvise on it. Well, one bourbon, one scotch, she'd say, one little bitty beer. And uh, that was the first time I heard the blues. First big gig I ever did was when I was nine. In 1958, I went to Catholic school, it was an elementary school, and uh, I, was, I sang the Bach Gunad variation of Ave Maria for the entire Catholic school, the nuns and the parents and everybody else. And I was singing Ave Maria. You know, I, I, can't, I can't touch notes like that, of course. Um, so that was my first big gig. Uh, I, I, I kind of, uh, it, it took much longer to answer your question. It mm -hmm. took much longer for me to decide that that was my calling. Right. Because, well, I had other stuff to do when I came back out of the service. What were your biggest influences? After, after your childhood experience of your first exposure to the blues, the first, as you became more of a professional yeah, musician. The first exposure, of, professional yeah, the musician. first exposure, of course, was John Lee Hooker, if you, uh, if, if you had, if I didn't make that clear. The next serious musician that I actually took something basic from was Mississippi Fred McDowell whose guitar style I incorporated before anybody. I didn't start playing guitar until I was in Vietnam in January of 1970. And the first music that I attempted to recreate was songs I'd heard Mississippi Fred do. Okay. And, uh, and, and that he's always been an influence to me going going ahead as it is 50 years on guitar. Wow. Who is your biggest influence as a harmonica player? I, I never really followed anybody as an influence in harp. I, I just tried to, to listen to all of them. Right. I, I had a Sonny Boy Williamson record in 1963. I heard Howlin' Wolf play harmonica in 1963. Uh, I, I heard played the grooves off of uh, the 45 I had of Scratch My Back by Slim Harpo. Um, I, uh, today, I'd say up to the present, I probably have had two gigging musicians who've been most influential with me, and one of them was Big Walter Horton. And one of them is uh, Earring George Mayweather, my, my actual mentor. Okay, right. Uh, who was J.B. Hutto's harmonica player, Eddie Taylor. He only made one record on his own. Right. But, but I, uh, I was lucky enough to hang around George for about the last, most of the last seven years of his life. Right. And we, and we were fishing buddies, you know. We didn't just talk music. We were, we were fishing buddies. Okay. He'd, go, he'd go fishing with me in the same green suit that he'd play the blues with the night before. 
Okay. <laughs> Why change, right? Yeah, Good. yeah. Well, the, uh, as, as a man so illiterate that he, it, it didn't matter which, which, which uh, hand he used to sign with, uh, because all, all he knew was the name. And he'd carry a, a, a raft of pens in this suit. Okay. So he could he scratch was, out his signature. Oh, he was, yeah. he was, a, he was a character, George was. But those were, my, those were my two modern day, still listening, yep. main influences. Now, there, there's other fellas, you know. Yep. Of course, James Cotton. I've hung around with James mm -hmm. Cotton a bit. Uh, Canned Heat, Al Wilson was, was an influence at the time. Rest his soul. Uh, after Al was dead, I used to service his father, who was a mason in Belmont, Massachusetts, and I'd put gravel and sand and muriatic acid and cement and all that on his one-ton truck. And he was still, uh, in 74, he was still taking Al's death pretty hard. Yeah. Wow. So, one, I just want to shift gears here. So how long have you lived in Clarksdale? Well, I actually came down 10 years ago. It, 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 10 years uh, ago as of October the 30th. I came in, I played a gig at the Bluesbury Cafe, where I was not yet a, a partner, but I, but I knew Art Gravaro and Carol Gravaro real well. I, so what's so special about Clarksdale? I, uh, well, to, to begin with, it's the, it's the cheapest place you can find to live and buy real estate in the United States, as far as I can see, that's not in receivership. Northwest Mississippi never got up as high as the rest of the economy, so it had less time to fall in the various recessions and whatnot. When, when the real estate bubble busted here, uh, well, my, my house is a small three-bedroom house that I paid $21,000 for. All right. You know, which is nothing. I, I took one year's savings of the best year that I ever had as a musician, and I bought a HUD foreclosure, cash. And now I can't be thrown out of it. There you go. Uh, I never owned a house before that time when I was 60 years old. But because of Clarksdale, you could? Uh, yeah, it was, uh, I, there may be other places, but, uh, but I think Clarksdale is probably the best I could. Cheap isn't just it, you know. Uh, obviously, uh, I came down because of the blues and because people now know who I am and, and know that I'm an international recording artist and performing artist. I, uh, I get some respect here. Besides being a, a property owner, a business partner, uh, I've served on a jury. Uh, uh, I am about to um, buy a burial plot. Uh, I, uh, I have uh, serious stuff here. So what's so special about Clarksdale? I. Uh, well, to, to begin with, it's the, it's the cheapest place you can find to live and buy real estate in the United States, as far as I can see, that's not in receivership. Northwest Mississippi never got up as high as the rest of the economy, so it had less time to fall in the various recessions and whatnot. 
when when the real estate bubble busted here, uh, well, my my house is a small three bedroom house that I paid twenty one thousand dollars for. All right, you know, which is nothing. I I took one year's savings of the best year that I ever had as a musician, and I bought a HUD foreclosure cash, and now I can't be thrown out of it. There you go. Uh, I never owned a house before mm -hmm. that time when I was 60 years old. But because of Clarksdale, you could. Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, I, there may be other places, but uh, but I think Clarksdale is probably the best I could. Cheap isn't just it, you know. Uh, obviously, uh, I came down because of the blues and because people now know who I am and and know that I'm an international recording artist and performing artist. I, uh, I get some respect here. Besides being a, a property owner, a business partner, uh, I've served on a jury. Uh, uh, I am about to um, buy a burial plot. Uh, I, uh, I have uh, serious stuff here. So Clarksdale yeah. seems like a slow enough place Come on down here, see the charm, you know. Read the card, read the card. And it, it's just, it, it's a really nice place to be. It's, I live, uh, frankly, in an enclave of people of more consciousness than, than your average. Mm -hmm. Like, like uh, Roger Stoley here at Catheads, uh, one of our impresarios of the blues business as well as the blues spirit around here. You're standing in one of the leading cultural places in Clarksdale, Mississippi. And the place is jam-packed chock-a-block with culture. And that's, mm -hmm. to put a single answer that kind of stretches to fit all, um, I like it here for the culture. Excellent. I'm, I'm, an, I, I'm an agriculturalist. If I retire, I can actually farm here, and I've got that started. There you go. So you've got another skill. Well, hopefully you're going to keep up with music. I'm very grateful to all the people who have supported me. I'm 70 years old now, and I'm so grateful to God and to the fans that I'm still running around here trying to do this at this point. And, and yeah, people seem to like it. Well, at this point, you know, at this point, you've Rolling got a CD the highway the while my Come song on. still sells. Yeah. Road food and cheap motels. That's one of the songs coming on that next record when I get out here. Okay. Road food and cheap motels. We love it. Well, hopefully you got plenty more in you because this last one is excellent. I, uh, I don't know. At, the, at this point in time, you know, I don't know how many more records I get in me. I can, I can sit and write songs and write songs and write songs. I'm... I'm a trained writer, but what else do I have to say? Mm, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I also write a, a mostly political column, and I've about run out of things to say. If people ain't going to get it now, then they're just not going to get it, or, or, or they've got their head turned away. So, uh, so I don't know how much more there is to say. I do, know, I, I do know being a poet, I can continue to write. Well, listen, great running into you here in Clarksdale. Hopefully you'll be staying around for a while.
I'd like to thank everyone for listening to the Blues Trail Revisited podcast in partnership with Visit Clarksdale. You can watch the film that inspired this podcast by going to www.bluestrailrevisited.com and you can find out a lot more about Clarksdale, Mississippi by going to visitclarksdale.com or download the app and check out all the cool interactive features. I'd like to shout out a special hello to the folks at Live from Clarksdale and Shared Experiences USA. There's still live stream music from Clarksdale and organizing special Delta experiences, including Clarksdale's Black History Experience and Deke Harp's Blues Experience. Check out their Facebook page or livefromclarksdale.com and sharedexperiencesusa.com. I'm Ted Reed, and to all you blues music fans out there, keep on hitting the blues trail. You never know what you're going to find. The Blues Trail Revisited podcast is produced by Ted Reed Productions. The field audio producer is Nolan Dean, and our project manager is Jamie Nyes. Thanks for listening. Thank you.